When's the last time you watched a Bronx tale? It'd been at least 10 years for me, but I threw it on the other day while I was packing boxes to move uptown. It is brilliant. If you haven't seen it, it's a coming-of-age movie about a kid growing up in the Bronx. The kid, named C, has two options. The straight and narrow path his father, a bus driver played by Robert De Niro, has taken, or a life in the mafia. His dad senses that he's gone the wrong direction and delivers him a line I haven't been able to shake since. In a moment of frustration with his son, he looks him in the eyes and says, The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. You should start a company in 2020 for a lot of reasons, but Robert De Niro just gave you the best one. You've got the talent and the opportunity to do something great. I'll help you with the framework and tactics to realize that potential. It's 2020, and this is the Idea to Startup Podcast Season 2. I've been told season one was, quote, like how I built this, but for entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur and I love how I built this, but I get the comparison. The goal of Idea to Startup is to give early stage founders something tactical to use. If we do our job right, you take notes during the podcast. The theme of season two is transparency. We want to show you how to understand exactly where you're at, to know the difference between truth and belief, and to bridge that gap with systems. We've got breakdowns by me, interviews with successful founders. It's a great season. I'm excited for you to listen to it. And if you haven't listened to season one, I'd do that. The episodes are evergreen and we worked really hard on them. You'll like them. As always, the Idea to Start a Podcast is brought to you by Tacklebox, the accelerator program for early stage founders with full-time jobs. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, only two people care about that, us and your mom. Hopefully we're more helpful. Apply at GetTackleBox.com for in-person cohorts in New York City or virtual cohorts anywhere in the world. Back to Robert De Niro and Wasted Talent. Is starting a company really the way to get the most out of your potential? Will it make you happy? I honestly don't know. And neither do you until you try. But that's the problem. People are not trying. They're not finding out. There were over 30% fewer companies started last year than there were started in 1970. That number is shocking to me. People aren't taking advantage of unprecedented access to cheap resources and global talent, and new company growth is grinding to a halt. Right now, the second you're listening to this, is the best time in the history of humans to start a company, and fewer people are doing it. Also, the wrong people are doing it. They're often mismatched. People who shouldn't be starting companies are, for the wrong reasons, and people who should be starting companies aren't for the wrong reasons. We'll get to all of that. In fact, we're going to hit three biggies today. I'm usually not a big agenda slide guy. I much prefer to tell stories and keep you guessing a bit. But to keep the narrative flowing, here's what's coming up in the next 12 minutes or so. Why you weren't starting a company and why it's not your fault. Why you should start a company and why it's not as big a deal as it sounds. And a system to do it all without being completely miserable. But first, the consequences of that 30% number. Fewer new companies is a big problem. It's a micro problem and it's a macro problem. New businesses drive the economy. They replace old businesses when they fail and they combat automation, copyright Andrew Yang. They're a lagging indicator of growth. We probably still haven't felt the actual full effect of declining new businesses over the past 10 to 20 years. And when it happens, we'll probably attribute it to something else. So why are these numbers decreasing? I've worked closely with a few hundred super early stage startups at Tacklebox the past five years. Founders probably in the same position as a lot of you, deciding whether to leave their job and pursue their idea full time or not. 
two giant trends have emerged as to why they don't start companies. One's in our DNA, and it's from the saber-toothed tiger days. One's brand new. You need to know about both. We'll start with omission bias. It keeps coming up in interviews with founders and tactics podcasts, but I just cannot overstate it. Omission bias is about risk. It's the tendency to worry more about doing something than not doing something. At its core, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of risk. Here's how our brains think about omission bias. If you start a startup and it goes, to borrow a phrase I learned from an Australian friend, tits up, you imagine that lots of people will see it and see that it went badly. If you don't start a startup, it can't go badly, so no one can ever see that it went badly. The potential downside is easy to visualize and dread. You'll need to make a resume and apply to jobs, and you'll need to talk about how you took a risk on something and it didn't work. It sounds awful. Surely no one is going to hire you ever again. You'll lose your spouse, you'll lose your dog, you'll lose your credit, and you'll never be able to get into business school or whatever else. The potential upside is a lot harder to grasp. Our nature as humans is to stay alive. Our internal systems don't care about upside, they care about avoiding downside. I avoid anything with the word networking in the title like the plague. The thought of holding a warm corona with that wet little napkin around it while trying to edge into conversations or pretend to look at my phone before I sneak out the back door haunts me. I get a chill thinking about forgetting to hold the beer in my left hand and doling out cold, damp handshakes all day. But if I take an honest look at who I've met that's impacted my life the past five years, a bunch of them started in awkward situations like that. Conferences, hackathons, cold coffees, a bumble date. If I could easily visualize the upside of quality relationships and see them hovering above people's heads, maybe I could stomach these events better. But I can't. I'm not saying you should go to more cocktail hours. I'm saying we need to recognize that our internal speakers are hardwired to blare the downside at you and mute the upside. I hear people screaming both sides a lot these days, and someone needs to scream that at our nervous systems. Omission bias isn't new. It's from the days when the downside actually was really bad, like being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, and the upside was just continuing to live. So it's been killing startups and creativity for decades. What's new now? What's new is that omission bias has a giant megaphone, and it's created the second trend which is stifling new company growth. Your failure now feels very, very public. In 1970, if you started a company that failed, a handful of your friends and family might hear about it. Now, your 1,500 LinkedIn connections, everyone on Instagram and Facebook, and whoever else will hear about it. The social cost feels massively high. Access to networks can be great for entrepreneurs building things, but it's terrible for entrepreneurs' psyches. That saying about feeling alone in a crowded room resonates with entrepreneurs, except it's magnified. It feels like you're all alone in a crowded room, and everyone in that room is watching you, judging you as you do something really difficult that they told you not to do in the first place. When entrepreneurs alluded to this, how public their failure would potentially be, I used to just parrot the David Foster Wallace quote, you'll stop worrying what others think of you when you realize how seldom they do. But I realized that's a cop-out. The reality of the situation is that new companies that should be started aren't because we obsessively visualize the downside, and to our internal systems, that downside has been turned up to 11 because of social networks. Omission bias and public failure are tough, and they're why the wrong people start companies. The majority of people starting companies these days, and this is mostly anecdotal, but I'm confident it's pretty representative, 
Start them because their lifestyle can handle the two psychological hurdles I just mentioned. Think about that. Starting a company is a decision based on the dexterity of someone's lifestyle, not on their ability to execute or the unique skill set or knowledge that they have accumulated. Lots of people in their early 20s start companies because their worst case scenario just isn't that bad comparatively. Lots of people who are wealthy start companies because, again, the downside just isn't that bad. I've had tons of people pitch me saying the reason they're starting the company is, of course, to try and make it work, but if not, their worst case is it looks great on a resume. That's a terrible reason to start a company. I believe founders need two things to build successful companies, specific knowledge and leverage. It's very rare that people in their early 20s have those because it's just hard to get by the age of 23. People who have specific knowledge and the networks required for leverage are older. They've spent time in industries getting that knowledge. They've honed a skill set. They've built a network. But omission bias hits them extra hard. They're married with kids. They're supporting a spouse. They think they're too old to take a risk. They built a lifestyle that has a giant delta from the one they think they'd have to live if they started a company. The work feels daunting. They're swallowed up. More importantly, their failure muscle is raw. They've been good at something for a while, and they don't remember what it's like to fall off their bike and skin their knee. The calluses need to be built back up. So here we are in 2020. Fewer people are starting companies. The ones who are shouldn't be, and the ones who should aren't. Perfect. Let's work with that. With that as a backdrop, what do you, as a person looking to start a company in 2020, need to do? How can you work with omission bias? The answer is to create a system to confront uncertainty. A system that takes as much emotion as possible out of the process, getting you to transparency and understanding exactly where you and your idea stand. I got pitched an idea the other day I've been pitched before. Easier access to therapy for people in their 20s and 30s. This particular founder was building a platform that let customers and therapists each create a profile with a few parameters. The marketplace would match them up, or patients could just search through the vetted options. When I pushed on customer a bit, asking why that particular customer hadn't already found a therapist, I was met with answers like, millennials aren't spoken to with a brand they trust, or it's too personal to just Google and hope. These aren't necessarily bad answers, but they didn't show a deep knowledge of the customer problem. Therapy is, of course, very personal. The answers I got were surface level. When I asked about why a marketplace was the best solution, I was told it scaled. Thinking about business model from day one is smart, but the business model should match the product which stems from a need. Of course, a marketplace is more desirable for an entrepreneur, but that won't make customers want it. Customers want what they want, not what you want them to want. I hope this startup finds its way, but the founder has a tough road ahead. The mistake this founder makes is the one that so many founders make, and the one you should avoid in 2020. As founders, especially super early stage folks, the point isn't to build a product, say a marketplace, an app, a widget. The point is to get to transparency, to know exactly how your customer interacts with the problem you're solving for them. That way, you can solve it in a unique way that no one else can. You need to understand how much they actually care and gauge whether they will, in fact, step out of their daily life to try something new. You walk into a startup idea with a little bit of truth, your experience with a problem and a customer, and a whole lot of belief, what you think a customer will do in any situation. You need to slowly, methodically move the beans from the belief side to the truth side. 
Getting the level of transparency you need won't happen by accident. Lots of entrepreneurs do a few customer interviews and then hire a dev shop to build out that marketplace because that feels more like progress than continuing to work with customers. It's not. To avoid this very human decision, you need to build an internal system that keeps you honest. That gets you more feedback so you can continue to segment and land on an initial customer that you can service better than anyone else. At Tacklebox, we call this test cycle time. It's the amount of time it takes for you to validate something you think is true to be true or false. It's an invaluable process to early stage entrepreneurs. So in the example from before, the founder might start by saying, I believe millennials have trouble finding therapists that'll work for them. This is a belief. They need to make it a truth with data. A few core steps will be helpful. First, start with the mindset that this probably isn't true. Millennials that don't already have a therapist probably don't want a therapist, and they certainly don't want one from a startup. It's your job to prove that they do want one from a startup and that you can position it in a way that is attractive and more attractive than any option they have now. You need to prove that your customers will go to absurd lengths to try something new to solve this problem before you build anything. Two, gather unbiased information from customer actions. Treat everything you do like an experiment where the actions of people who might be your customers are the only data points that you recognize. Make sure you minimize the distance from customers to ground your decisions in this reality. Each decision should be the result of something you saw happen. Three, make that decision based on all the data points that you have acquired. Finally, you want to audit steps one to three and invest in the scaffolding. Make it easier, cheaper, cognitively and emotionally to run the next round of tests. A problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. You can't aimlessly say, I'm going to build a marketplace so millennials can get therapy. You'll wind up with a product that's totally based on belief. You need to define a specific problem, recognize that your answer to that problem is probably mostly belief, and then start trying to move the beans to the truth side. This should look like an experiment and you should look like an explorer. This week, your quest is to prove that a certain group of customers actually care about a certain well-defined problem. Now you can be as creative as you'd like within those constraints, setting up experiments that prove or disprove this hypothesis. The stakes are relatively low. No one's quitting their job yet. You're just forcing customers to prove that they're worth your time. So how will you find customers to test? What messaging and call to action will you use to get them to validate interest? What tools do you need? What resources will be needed to build those tools? All of those things become front and center. You can become creative with your experiments. Also, an accountability partner helps. Meet with them every other week, someone else trying to start a startup, and pitch each other on the tests you're going to run and why. Your tests are going to show you that you're wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. Way more than you can imagine. It's ridiculously hard to get anyone to do anything. But that's great. It'll callous your failure muscle and it'll teach you how to encounter uncertainty. It'll help you build systems to reduce test cycle time. It'll make you an entrepreneur. We've got templates for these tests. They work. Head over to gettacklebox.com to check them out or shoot me an email. They're free. These are important for all the founders with specific knowledge and networks and this perceived massive opportunity cost. Don't quit your job. Don't mortgage your house. Don't think about fundraising. Just run some tests. Build the system. See what comes back.
I'm going to go back on what I said to start the podcast. I don't think you should start a company in 2020. I do think you should build an internal system to test and flesh out ideas, though. You should run ideas and beliefs through this system constantly, understanding more and more about the customer you want to serve and the acute problem that they have. You should make the system better each time, faster feedback loops, more data. Understand the steps your customers go through and understand where it hurts. This is going to be your differentiator. No one else does this. You should then use this system to shield yourself from the cognitive biases we spoke about. You're not taking massive leaps. You're not trying to build something just so you can raise funding. You're exploring problems in a calculated way. You're building up calluses. You're getting better at dealing with uncertainty. The best way to start a company in 2020 is to not start a company, but to build a system to get transparency. This will get you to a manageable customer and a problem you can solve. And you'll solve it. Then you'll grow. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent, but not for you. Not this year. Idea to Startup is brought to you by Tacklebox, an accelerator program for founders of full-time jobs in New York City. We help you build a system to test and refine your idea so you can decide if you want to do it full-time or not. Apply at gettacklebox.com or email me at brian at gettacklebox.com. Have a great week.